Hi, welcome along to the Methodist Central Hall Westminster podcast. My name's Dan Forshaw. You join me just in the heart of Westminster. It's peak holiday season. It's a beautiful summer's day here in Westminster. I'm seeing hundreds of tourists gathering outside Westminster Abbey, all trying to grab that ultimate selfie. People on tours, buses, tourist buses, a few people still going about their daily lives and moving backwards and forwards, uh, trying to keep this country going in some way or the other. Just across the road in the Queen Elizabeth II Centre last Tuesday, uh, the new leader of the Conservative Party and then later Prime Minister Boris Johnson was announced. Uh, but I'm talking today with Paul Moynihan, who's the head of our Visitor Services Department, and we're going to go on a tour of our historic building. So with remembering the view I've got right now, looking just at the towers of Westminster Abbey, would have been very different 120 years ago, because this was the site of the Royal Aquarium, and across the road where the Queen Elizabeth II Conference Centre now stands was Westminster Hospital. The Abbey, of course, has been on that site since around 900 AD, but the towers themselves date to around about the 18th century. So we're going to go in, we're going to speak to Paul, we're going to find out about our historic buildings, some of the quirks, and some of the things that you can find if you come on a tour over this summer or at any time. We have free tours available almost every single day over the summer holidays, unless there's an event on in the hall. And you can always find out more by visiting our website, methodistcentralhall.org.uk. Let's go inside now. Let's talk to Paul. So I'm here in the Visitor Services Department with Paul Moynihan, who's the head of our Visitor Services. And along this wall here, Paul, we've got the historic role. Tell me what the historic role is and what it signifies. Well, it's the reason why we're here today without the, the names these books, these 50 books contain over 1 million names and these are the great benefactors who at some point between 1898 and, and 1904 each donated a guinea pound five pence in today's currency to what they then called the 20th century fund or the million guinea fund a fund set up by the then Wesleyan Methodists to help grow the church at the beginning of the 20th century. Now, the amount, one guinea, does not sound a lot of money to you and me today, but then was the average week's wage. Right. So by today's standards, I reckon the average week's wage, certainly in London, is something between 200 and 300 pounds. Uh-huh. So rather than trying to collect a million guineas by today's standards, we're trying to collect something in the region of between 200 and 300 million pounds. Wow. And that, I think, is an awful lot of money. Yes. They launched this bright idea uh, um, as a means of commemorating the centenary of the death of John Wesley. Wesley had died in 1791. So in 1891, the Methodist powers that be dreamt up this idea of commemorating John's life and work on the centenary of his death by creating this fund. They eventually launched it in 1898 and closed the books just six years later with over a million guineas in the fund. They raised that sum of money in six years. And that, I think, is just nothing short of miraculous. Um, Because, you know, if we wish to raise funds today, we have modern technology and modern means by which we can spread a message and raise money, crowdfunding, all the rest of it. What have they got in 1898? Essentially word of mouth and nothing more than that. But such is the belief, the dream, the vision of the Methodist people of that time that, yes, six years, they raised that money. And there's a couple of interesting names in the book that we've you found over the years, isn't there? Well, one certain... particular one from uh, an occupancy of a certain uh, room in Washington. 
We have the name of President William McKinley in the book. McKinley was the US president from 1897 to 1901, when unfortunately he, he was assassinated. But it seems that he is amongst the, the many, many people who donated a guinea to this fund. Another name in the, in the book is uh, the name of Walter Tull. Um, as, uh, Tull, was, uh, Tull was in a children's care home. Tull was an orphan in the east end of London. And he donated to this fund as a child. And uh, Tull went on to become the first black professional football player in this country, wow. playing for Tottenham Hotspur. Right. And then became the first black commissioned officer in the British Army. And was unfortunately killed in, uh, towards the end of the, the First World War. Out of this fund, we have a million guineas now in this fund, out of this fund, the Methodist people spent three quarters of a million on building Methodist churches and chapels all over this country. They then sp uh, also spent money on some children's care homes and on some Methodist schools and on missionary work, both in this country and abroad. And a quarter of a million guineas they used to begin the construction. What they dreamt of was be a place that would be a focus, a national focus for the Methodist Church in this country and would play the same sort of role for Methodism as, say, Westminster Abbey does for the Church of England. And they dreamt of it as being both a, a church with a worshipping community and all that entailed, as space provided for the national offices for the church in this country, the connection, and also to be a conference centre and a meeting place. So that's the threefold vision that the powers that be dreamt of about this building. So we have three quarters of a million guineas left in this fund towards the building of this national focus. And the powers that be start looking for a site they can acquire to buy and build on and are looking towards St Martin in the Fields, towards St Paul's Cathedral, over towards that side of London. And quite by chance, they discover that this site is up for sale. And on this site is a building known as the Royal Aquarium. Now, I use the term carefully. It was not owned by the royal family. It was not a crown property. It was a private concern. Aquarium, yes, it did have some fish in it, but even some of them were dead. For example, they bought themselves a live whale. Now, where on earth do you go and buy a live whale from? I don't know. They bought a live whale. And as soon as live whale arrived, I'm afraid, it died. spoiler alert, <laughs> whale died. And we have here a, a picture of oh, wow. the whale. Um, this wonderful picture you're, we are looking at is the exterior and the interior of this building. It looks like a a cross between a railway station and the old Crystal Palace. Yes, I was going to say, it reminded me it's of the old Crystal Palace. It's very much that sort of scale. This building, though, was given over to, uh, to musical, to theatre, to entertainment of one sort or another. It opened in 1876 by the then Duke of Edinburgh. Um, there were people who lived nearby, though, who thought that having this place of entertainment so close to Westminster Abbey and to Parliament was really um, lowering the tone of the neighbourhood. So they were quite delighted when in 1900 this building went bankrupt 
and we spent our three quarters of the, sorry our quarter of a million guineas on buying this building and knocking it down. The aquarium stre- stretches or stretched rather from more or less where our front door is today to more or less where St James's Park tube station is. So it's a building that's about four or five times the size of Methodist Central Hall as we know it today. It's a huge building. I'm not surprised it went bankrupt. Mm. Um, Quite remarkable. So we bought it and knocked it down. I mentioned uh, people donated a million guineas to the fund. When you donated your guinea to the fund and you were not allowed to give more than a guinea or less than a guinea, it had to be a guinea, nothing at all. You received in return one of these rather wonderful colour illuminated certificates with your name inscribed in it, on it, as a thank you for, from, from the connection for your donation to the fund. If you were a child, and children obviously could, could not afford a guinea, if a child gave 5p, one shilling to the fund, in return the child got sent one of these rather wonderful pewter medallions with an image of Wesley on them. So having acquired a site and knocked down a building, the Methodist powers that be then have a a competition amongst the leading architects of the day to come up with a design for this building. And some 130 architects entered the competition and eventually whittled down to a final nine and down to a final uh, two, three, and then a final one. The company that won the competition was a firm called Lancaster and Rickards, who, as well as designing this building, also built town halls in Deptford and in Cardiff. And some 20, 30 years after they built Methodist Central Hall, more or less used the same plans for a rather smart hotel in India, which is still there to this day. The competition had certain rules in it. One of the rules was that the exterior of this building should not look like a church for the reason that the Methodist people were trying to attract people inside this building and others that they called central halls who might not normally darken the doorstep of a church normally. Methodist people, the Methodist powers that be thought there's so many people out there who just wouldn't normally go to church they might feel more comfortable coming into a building for other purposes and then discover there's actually a chapel or worship space and find God in that way. It's a process that worked quite well in the beginning of the century. Another rule was that the exterior of this building, the architectural style, must look nothing like Westminster Abbey because they did not want any competition at all with the Abbey. Now, the, the, the Abbey is splendid um, Gothic, uh, Saxon, Norman, wonderful design. They were something totally different. So Lancaster and Rickards created an architectural style which they called Viennese Baroque, because they based their ideas on the opera houses in both Paris and Vienna. If you ever go to the Paris Opera House, the Viennese Opera House, you'll sense a little bit of deja vu in in recognising the style in which those two buildings are built. So, Paul, we're now standing in the library, which is uh, two interconnecting rooms with the lecture hall, which are often hired out during the week uh, for conferences and events and and things like that. It was used famously as the spin room for the election debates, I think, a few years ago. Uh, But something else happened almost at the spot we're stood at in 1966 during a church service. (laughs) Um, Maybe you care to elaborate 
<laughs> probably the most embarrassing thing that's ever happened here. Um, in 1966, as you will recall, uh, Dan, um, England won the World Cup. Uh, some months earlier, uh, the World Cup had actually been in this building. It was the centrepiece of a stamp exhibition for a few weeks. And as you suggest, one Sunday morning, whilst worship was taking place upstairs, I'm afraid the World Cup got stolen from the library. Now, I must, hate, I must add, security in this building has improved <laughs> immensely ever since. Uh, but yes, that's our, our biggest claim to shame, as it were. Fortunately... Uh, for all concerned, uh, a, a few weeks later, the World Cup was recovered from uh, underneath a, a bush in South London by a rather adventurous dog out for a morning stroll with its owner. So the, the Cup was restored to FIFA, and of course, uh, a few weeks later, England went, went and won the World Cup. And if anyone from the FIFA or the FA is ever listening to this, you know, we, we're very happy to take care of it again and we'll take more care of it this time. <laughs> and hopefully the same result may be achieved for the England football team. <laughs> so we're now in our reception area and we're with uh, Mr Wesley. A life-size statue of John himself. This was sculpted in about 1840 by a grandfather and a grandson working together who both had the same name, Samuel Manning. Uh, there were still some people alive at that point who had personally known John, and they happened to say, they commented what a very good likeness the statue was of the man. Now, uh, this statue was originally meant to be going into Westminster Abbey. That's what it was created for. But when it was finished, the Abbey refused to have it, not on artistic grounds. You see, as you will know, Wesley and his early followers were all members of the Church of England. Wesley was a vicar in the Church of England until he died. And it's only after John's death did his followers formally break away from the Church of England and become, if you like, established as the Methodist Church as we know and love it today. And by 1840, Methodism was so popular in this country that the Church of England was somewhat annoyed that Wesley's ministry had caused this split, this schism, within the Church of England. And so at the time, they wanted nothing to do with the statue. Now, I must add here strongly that the Abbey has made up for it since. We are, we are great friends with the Abbey today, and the Abbey are with us. And there's an awful lot that we do in partnership uh, with the Abbey and with the Roman Catholic Cathedral uh, down the other end of Victoria Street. And there are monuments to both John and to Charles in the Abbey today. But in 1840, the Abbey didn't want the statue, so the statue was given instead to a theological college in Richmond in Surrey, where it stayed for some 170 years until the college closed in uh, the late 1970s and the statue was offered to us. It was originally sited in the crush hall outside the Great Hall, but during a refurbishment in about 2004-2005, it was decided to move the statue downstairs to the foyer where you and I are today. And uh, here I'm going to name drop dreadfully, I'm afraid. Uh, Her Majesty the Queen was coming in to attend a concert uh, around that time, and Her Majesty was invited to unveil the statue of Wesley now on this spot. And Her Majesty said on that occasion, her words, not mine, how delighted she was for once to be unveiling a life-size statue of somebody who's even shorter than she is. Even with the plinth. Even with the plinth. You see, Wesley is five foot one. Her Majesty is five foot three.
we'll make our way up the staircase now to the Great Hall. And as we walk up, uh, uh, this window here, of course, played a um, very important role, as I saw from a photograph when I was searching, uh, in 1945. Um, Did it tell me? You don't know? Oh, wow, I've got something here on Paul. Fantastic. So there is a picture floating around on one of the stock news websites of Clement Attlee giving his victory speech from this very spot after the 1945 general election. I'll have to share it with you You'll for have the archive. I'm aware that Churchill uh, had a Tory party conference here in 45 before that election. No, the, uh, the, the window must have opened out and Attlee addressed yeah. his supporters. Oh gosh, it's... After the election victory in 45. I'd be just to see that, Dan. I mentioned earlier that we, we like people to feel comfortable when they come into this building, no matter what their faith background, if any, uh, or where they have come from or why they want to be here. So any religious symbolism is rather low-key and discreet, but it's there if you want to see it. So, for instance, on the edges of the wooden tables in the crush hall, you can see scallop shells carved into the legs. And similarly, there are scallop shells over the doorways in, in the plasterwork. The scallop shell was the, uh, for centuries recognised as, as the badge of the Christian pilgrim. Think St James Compostella. Mm -hmm. That's what you get when you complete the walk to Compostella. You get given the badge of a scallop shell. Scallop shells also feature in Wesley's coat of arms in the oil painting you can see in the crush hall as well. Another piece of symbolism, if you look at the metalwork, the ironwork of these light, light fittings, you can see a crown... You can see a lyre or a harp, and you can see palms, logels, either side of the harp. This is imagery out of the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible, about what life will be like in heaven for those of us who get there. Now, the Great Hall is used for Sunday worship each Sunday morning, and is also hired out throughout the week for some great events. But there was one particular event that happened here in 1946 that we're quite famous for. Oh, we are indeed. The very first meeting of the United Nations happened here. We are the birthplace of the UN, and both us and the UN are extremely proud of that fact. And um, how many nations were here? Uh, 51 nations were represented. Uh, the, the building had been... The entire building was requisitioned uh, for a three-month period. It's the only time in the building's history that the church community has been unable to worship here on a Sunday. And uh, for that period, uh, the church community moved, first of all, to the Victoria Palace Theatre, down near Victoria Station, where Hamilton is now playing. Uh, but eventually they outgrew that, so they moved again for the remaining period to the London Coliseum, now the home of English National Opera. And who, what, was, what sort of happened here? In the, what was, um, why here for the UN in 1946? What was we've, it? Well, firstly, we were seen very much as a neutral space. We were undamaged at all by, by, uh, by bombs, by action in, in, in the Second World War. Um, we were a very convenient space in the centre of London, close to Parliament. Um, that's probably the main reason why we, we were selected. There was probably not many other alternatives that, that, that could have coped with this. And there were some pretty impressive historical figures who spoke here during that meeting of the UN. The first UN Secretary General was elected, was elected here. here. Yes, the first Security Council was appointed here. Attlee himself addressed 
Eleanor Roosevelt as well. Yes, uh, King George himself came and visited the assembly, King George VI. And the UN have been back quite regularly, don't they? they, they they've been back to mark... Previous um, sort of Kofi Annan's been here and spoken here and uh, the current UN Secretary-General as well. The UN came back and marked their 50th anniversary in 1996 with some big events here, including the unveiling of a plaque on the outside of this building, on the Tothill side, uh, the Tothill roadside. Uh, there's a second plaque, I think, marking the 75th anniversary of the UN. Uh, and uh, a, a tree was planted in the uh, grass area immediately outside the front door of this building. So if we look up here, Paul, we've got an absolutely incredible It's incredible, dome. isn't it? I can yes. see some more scallop shells yes, sort of into you the can. You can. decor of the dome. You can. It is the second largest of its kind in the world, but it is the oldest. And that's its, its self-supporting concrete. So how many people can we fit in here? We can, sit, we, could, we can seat round about 2,000 people in here, 1,000 right. upstairs. We can get 1,000 downstairs when we need to, or thereabouts. And recently we've had all sorts of things. We've had TV productions in, we had uh, James Corden. James we? Corden doing his US nightly chat show here with guests such as Tom Hanks and Gillian Anderson. We had Tom Hanks singing And Can It Be. And we did on, indeed, on, uh, we did indeed. Singing we Wesley did, and Hymns. We did indeed. Was a good thing. We had Andrew Neil doing the last edition of his late night political discussion programme this week. And every New Year's Eve we ring in the New Year for the whole country with a with a rock concert. With a rock concert leading into the fireworks comes out of here, yes indeed. So it's, it's certainly, um, it's seen and heard some amazing events this room, hasn't it, over the years? Oh, ev ev everything from uh, a press conference involving most of the Russian leadership in the 1950s uh, through to uh, Channel 4 Stand Up to Cancer, telethon event every other year, through to we even had games of badminton in here in 2012 during the London Olympics. Uh, the Chinese national badminton team came here and staged some demonstration badminton games. Fantastic. Was the centrepiece, the, 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 the real focal point uh, at the hall at the moment, is the great organ, which is as old as the building. You know, we opened in 1912. That organ dates from 1912 originally constructed by one of the world's greatest organ companies, Hills, uh, refurbished on several occasions over the years, most recently in 2010, 2011. There's over 4,700 pipes in that, that beast. It is one of the most splendid organs in London, if not the country. Yeah, if not the world, I guess. Yes. And he's used every Sunday during yeah. worship with the director of music and... And cool. shortly I'm going to be doing a rehearsal with him as well. So, so I see. Yeah. And it's Quite often on a Sunday afternoon there are, there are free organ recitals as well. Um, many of the great names in the organ world have, have, have played that instrument over the years. And of course one of the more famous ones, well his son is more famous maybe than he was, was, uh, was um, William, Lloyd, William Lloyd Webber. Yes. Father of Andrew Lloyd Webber. Who, Andrew Lloyd Webber apparently first performed bits from Joseph on this very stage. The first public performance yeah. of Joseph was on this stage, yes. Andrew was quite young at the time. Sadly, we didn't put him for a, uh, a royalty rate. <laughs> <laughs> but, but Bill Lloyd Webber, and Andrew and Julian's father, was uh, well, a composer and a musician of some substance in his own right, mm -hmm. perhaps overshadowed today by uh, the uh, greater glories of, of, of his children, uh, Andrew and Julian, but sort of very recognised musical name, Bill Lloyd Webber. So here we are at one of my favourite parts of this building and this, this view 
on the fourth floor balcony that we get to see Westminster Abbey. We would have seen, uh, well, we, we call it Big Ben, but of course it's not Big Ben because the Big Ben is the bell, but the tower is now shrouded in scaffolding, scaffolding and we can't really see anything. What you see the London Eye, you see the Queen Elizabeth Conference Centre, thousands of tourists milling out below us. And uh, a few years ago, gosh, it's now, I guess, eight years ago, the Royal Wedding, this was sort of transformed into a, a TV studio with many, many, many different nations here and people overlooking because of this wonderful view we've got of overlooking the front door of the Abbey. Yes, Dan. Um, when I bring visitors out, particularly British visitors, I, I always say to them, do you buy a television licence? And they look at me puzzled. Go, yes, of course we do, they say. You know, we love our BBC. So I say, thank you very much indeed, because some of that money you pay for the BBC for your television licence automatically comes to us at Methodist Central because the BBC have a permanent contract with us. When they want to televise what's going on in the Abbey, they have the right to place their cameras here on this fourth floor balcony. And on the flat roof immediately above us, they crane in a commentary box. That's where Hugh Edwards sits with that wonderful backdrop of the Abbey. So, as you said, when Kate and William got married, uh, every bit of roof space in this building, every room in this building, with the exception of the Great Hall, was let to a remedial organisation of one sort or another. So the Methodist Church did very nicely, thank you very much indeed, <laughs> out of the wedding of, of Kate and William. And if we turn round behind us, Paul, we can actually see the dome. And I know from personal experience, we can get almost to the top up there. Uh, and we open it up one weekend a year, don't we, for Open London, where we do tours up to the top of the dome. Yes, usually the third weekend in September of the year, on the Sunday afternoon, we take part in this wonderful, wonderful initiative called Open House London, where lots of public buildings that are normally closed to the public uh, open their doors and you can either book in advance or, or, or just turn up. Here, you can just turn up. And on, the, on that Sunday afternoon that we take part in it, we get the best part of a 1,000 people through our doors to have tours of this building about of whom two-thirds to three-quarters will probably come and attempt to climb up to the very top of the dome and enjoy what I believe is one of the best views of London you can get anywhere. Yes, definitely. Well, Paul, thank you so much for being on our podcast it's today. It's a pleasure, Dan, as it's always. A, I've been amazing tour. I've learned so much, and I'm glad that I've been able to give one thing back to you as well. <laughs> yeah, so indeed. I've been well, I, I must go and find that photograph Do. of Clement Atlee. Paul, thank you very much. Cheers, Dan. <laughs>